Hello, good evening, everybody. Welcome very much to the LSE. Uh, my name is Stephen Jenkins. Uh, I recently joined the LSE as a professor of economic and social policy. Those of you who were expecting Stuart Corbridge, he was unable to be here. Anyway, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the school's uh, for, for, to the school for this evening's LSE Works lecture series event on the topic of Britain, a country divided. And there is a question mark at the end, and you can decide at the end of the comments perhaps whether or not it should stay or not. The plan tonight is that uh, John Hills, on my right here, is going to speak first for about 20 to 25 minutes on the main findings of his recent work, in particular the work associated with the National Equality Panel. And then Polly Vizard, his colleague, is going to speak for another 20 or so minutes about the so-called equality me Equalities Measurement Framework. Um, then we'll we're very lucky to have uh, two short commentaries from Professor Tony Atkinson and David Darton. Uh, my job is mainly to do this introduction and to then facilitate the questions and answers that we'll have at the end of the evening. And I also have to ask you to turn off those phones, mobile devices, and so on. Uh, and I also have to say a quick word about the lecture series and our speakers. So I'm very pleased to tell you about LSE Works. I don't know about LSE Plays, but I'm sure they do as well. But LSE Works, it's a lecture series that has been running throughout the course of this term at the school. And the idea is to make available some of the fundamental insights of the LSE's 15 designated research centres. So for example, we'll be talking about the Centre for Analysis of Social Ex Exclusion tonight, and the next one in the series will be coming from the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change. So the idea is to, to have this work um, quickly discussed by members of what the UK government likes to call academia's users groups, but uh, what the school prefers to see as non-academic professionals who share common concerns with our researchers. So this is very much in the tradition of the LSE. Remember the motto to do with to understand the causes of things. But of course, um, always from the very beginnings of the school, there's been lots of concern with these sorts of issues from the, the Webbs, the Fabians, later, later Beveridge, Hayek, and all their various different ways to suggest how things might be better. I should also say thank you very much to Sage, the publishers, for their support of this, this evening. So that's the context in which tonight's event is occurring. So let me now uh, introduce the speakers. We're be kicking off with uh, John Hills. John is a professor of social policy here at the LSE, where he's also the director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Exclusion, otherwise known as CASE. Uh, CASE was founded in 1997. Uh, it's principally concerned with research on social disadvantage in all its various dimensions and the impact of policies on those disadvantages. Uh, CASE is a multidisciplinary research centre with many national and international connections and it's received funding over the years from virtually all the major funders in the UK ranging from the ESRC, Nuffield, Leverhulme and Roundtree Foundations and so on. Uh, John's work has been central to CASE. He's uh, worked on income distribution, the welfare state, social security, housing, taxation and has a book on just about every one of those topics. He was a member of the Pensions Commission between 2003 and 6, and more recently chaired the, the last government's National Equality Panel, um, about which he's going to tell us more. Uh, 
So he's going to be talking about that report, some of its policy recommendations and uh, things that have come up since. Our second speaker will be Dr Polly Vizard, who's sitting down the front there. Uh, she, like John, belongs to CASE. Uh, Polly has published widely on economic and social rights in the UK and public perceptions of those rights. She's also explored the value in the UK context of Amartya Sen's influential work on capabilities and sought to develop um, a capability uh, framework for use in Britain. And she's been work doing a lot of work with her colleague Tanya Burkhart, who's also at CASE, uh, at, on these very issues and published a lot of influential work on a so-called equality measurement framework, uh, or EMF. Uh, a lot of that work has been done for the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and Polly's going to be drawing on that work tonight. I'm also very pleased to welcome our distinguished discussants. Uh, there's Professor Sir Tony Atkinson, who's uh, currently a senior research fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford, where he was previously uh, a warden uh, between 1994 and 2005. Um, Tony is a fellow of the British Academy, a past president of the Econometric Society, and virtually every other distinguished economic society in the world. Right now, uh, we at the LSE are also privileged that he is a centennial professor here at the LSE. He was also a professor here in the past, but that's, he's back here as the centennial professor. Tony is probably one of the most respected and most distinguished social sciences in this country, if not the world, and widely um, acknowledged as one of the world's foremost authorities on income distribution, inequality and all that. And if you were here two nights ago, you would have heard him himself uh, speak on these very topics. I'm also pleased to introduce uh, David Darton, who is Director of Foresight, which is the Strategy Department at the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. David has led the Commission's work in three key areas, three key areas equality, human rights and good relations. And among his published work, one that still stands out, is in, in an edited collection from 2004 called The Right Use of Money. An appropriate, very nice title. Um, so, without further ado, it's over for me and over, over to John. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. And um, thanks to... Um, the LSE Works team for having um, set up this evening's um, event. Ooh, these are in not the right order. Okay. Um, okay, here we go. This is mine. Um, uh, what I'm going to be talking about this evening is about one aspect of our work within CASE. Um, it's something that we were asked to do um, by the last government. Um, we were asked to set up um, and then coordinate the work of a national equality panel. Um, I should say that that means that our work was sponsored by a government that has a relatively good human rights record. Um, uh, which is not always the case. Um, so we were asked by um, um, Harriet Harman, who was at that point uh, Minister for Women and Equalities, um, to set up the panel 
to look at the relationships between economic outcomes, and I stress the word economic there because um, Polly is going to be talking about um, analysis of other kinds of inequalities. Um, so we looked at things like education, we looked at employment, um, hourly wages, weekly earnings, the individual incomes that people receive in their own right, um, household income, um, and wealth. Um, the, so we were asked to look at the, the relationship between those, character, th those outcomes on the one hand and people's characteristics and circumstances on the other. So their, um, their gender, their age, their disability status, ethnicity, religion or belief, sexual orientation, uh, but also with the addition of uh, things like social class, housing tenure, nation or region and neighbourhood uh, deprivation. Um, I was privileged to, to chair the, the panel. And our members included um, my colleague Ruth Lupton, um, also from Case, um, Steve Machin, um, who is part of his time here at LSE, and indeed Stephen Jenkins, our chair this evening, um, who was then at Essex University, and I'm now delighted um, is with us in um, the department here. Um, our report came out at the end of January last year. Um, on the way out, um, uh, if you would like them, there are copies, um, a lot of copies if you want them, of the short six-page summary of our report, which is easy to carry home. Um, there are copies of the longer 40-page summary, which is also fairly easy to carry home. And for real enthusiasts, um, there are copies of the whole 400-page report, um, which you're very welcome to um, take with you. Um, I should say that we were not only um, sponsored and supported by the Government Equalities Office um, in terms of um, financing the exercise, um, the, uh, we also had on secondment from the Government Equalities Office a very able secretariat led by uh, Giovanni Ratsu, um, who I think is here this evening, um, and therefore can ask, answer any uh, particularly difficult questions. Um, what I want to talk about this evening, given rather limited time, is to look at the relationship between um, our conclusions in the sense of the policy areas that we identified as um, being um, centrally, uh, as presenting challenges for government policy, um, and what's happened to policy in the year since we reported. Um, in effect, how do the policy directions of the, of the new government, the Conservative Liberal Coalition that um, became the government uh, back in May, relate to um, the kind of things uh, that, we were, that we were talking about that flowed from our research. So I'm not going to go into details of, of our findings, just um, think about the, um, the implications they have for policy. And I want to start with this um, quotation from uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, um, which he made in, in an article um, in, in The Guardian based, I think, on his um, Hugo Young uh, lecture um, back in November. Um, and I think there are two things that are important about this. Um, first of all, um, he, as you'll see in a moment, has identified promotion of social mobility as being um, the central aim of the new government and also um, defined social mobility as being the central characteristic of a fair society rather than, and in, 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 in distinction from, a particular level of income equality. And he went on to say, inequalities become injustices when they are fixed, passed on from generation to generation. Now, we could have another debate about that word become and the implication that, um, that other levels of income inequality are not um, uh, uh, may not be injustices. But in fact, everything we said in the um, challenges we identified for policy relate precisely to this issue 
of transmission from generation to generation and then um, within people's lives as they develop. And that's how we organized um, what we talked about. Now, we, at the end of our, um, at the end of our report, and you'll see in, they're listed in the, in the summary um, on, on your way out if you click that, 16 challenges for policy, although in fact there were 17. There's what I've put up here as challenge naught. I'm just going to run through all 17 of these. Um, as the introduction to um, our, 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 that, that list of challenges, um, we argued that given the level of income inequality, given the inequality of resources, one thing that public policy can do is to ensure that access to important aspects of life don't depend on individual resources. Now, obviously, public services are completely central. They're not the only thing, but they are completely central to that objective. And therefore, the fact that things like um, spending on the National Health Service and spending on schools have been protected um, um, in real terms within the spending review is important in terms of people's access to those, um, to those services, although, of course, um, even protecting things in real terms um, don't necessarily um, cope with the pressure on resources from an ageing society um, or from um, a larger pupil population. But other public services are bearing the brunt of the fiscal adjustment, with 78% of the fiscal adjustment coming from public services and only 22% from taxation. Um, it's outside those, those areas um, that things like, as each local authority makes its decisions at the moment, we hear of public services that, that are available, available to people regardless of their incomes um, being badly hit, obvious things like libraries, parks, but in general the public realm. On the other hand, um, at least our access to forests has been protected um, and it's, it's also true that free access to museums um, has, has been protected. But our main list started, ran through the life cycle and started with the early years and pointed to the evidence, which is I think now very well known, about the, the, not just the differences in school readiness um, uh, when, when children arrive in school, but the way they um, develop thereafter. And this is something on which the new government has put a lot of emphasis, um, commissioning two reviews, one by um, Frank Field, the Labour MP, and the second by um, a second Labour MP who uh, his name escapes me, but he's probably in the audience, um, so my apologies for that. Um, um, focusing on, um, on what they've described as the foundation years, the years from 0 to 5. And this is clearly um, a very important part of government policy. Um, and as Nick Clegg put it in an earlier speech, there is no more potent investment in the future than investment in the early years. And so policies like Sure Start have been protected within the cuts to some extent, but will become more focused on those in need. Um, but on the, on the other hand, when you look around how different local authorities are actually implementing the cuts um, in some local authorities, some within London, it's sure start centres um, and early years provision that are being cut back, despite this being um, uh, part of um, one of um, both the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister's um, key objectives. Moving on, we pointed to the way that those differences that relate to uh, family background aren't just there when children enter school, but actually widen. Uh, some of the evidence um, produced for us by uh, colleagues such as Simon Burgess at, at Bristol University and from the Institute for Fiscal Studies showed the way that between the ages of, of 3, 5, 7, 11, 14, differences related to parental occupation or family income um, widened. Um, we pointed to 
Um, that and other evidence are suggesting the importance of reducing child poverty and improving the attainments of poor children. Uh, now, on this side of, of the balance sheet, um, there is maybe um, less positive to say. We know child benefit has been frozen in cash terms. It's been withdrawn from high-rate taxpayers, so less relevant perhaps for, for this, except in maybe political terms of what happens as, as um, coverage is, is um, reduced and not the whole population. Um, the ha there was an increase um, in the, uh, announced in the emergency budget um, in child tax credit, um, but it will now be more sharply means-tested. But in the longer run, the more important thing will be the way in which um, the index being used for indexing all benefits and um, nearly all benefits and tax credits is the consumer price index, which systematically lags behind um, the retail price index. Um, Tony, um, who knows about these things, will explain precisely why, um, if, you, if you need to know why that happens. Um, the implication of that is that if what you're interested in is the relationship between um, the incomes of people dependent on benefits um, or with a large part of their income coming from them or tax credits, they will lag behind um, other people's living standards, assuming that at some point they start rising. On the other hand, um, one, of the, um, one of the elements of the coalition agreement was the introduction of the pupil premium um, within schools funding. Um, which will um, weight um, spending going to schools to, to, towards um, um, pupils um, whose parents are on free school meals. Um, uh, and I, I think that's the main criterion being used. Um, but note that that's within a budget that is that's part of a budget that is, that is flat in real terms. Um, and therefore, if the pupil premium is growing, that means something else is shrinking. And the other funding was already, to some extent, related to deprivation um, at school level. Um, so it's um, not entirely um, um, uh, all one way in terms of the impact of the, of the pupil premium. And then there are a series of other reforms whose impact, I think, in this area we, we d simply don't know, the um, establishment of free schools and so on. We then moved on to um, the differences um, that, that at the, the other end of, of um, schooling um, in terms of things like entry into higher education. Um, and if you go down the list here, um, clearly um, there is huge controversy. Educational maintenance allowances um, for 16 to 70-year-olds still staying on in school um, with low incomes have gone. The child trust funds, which were there with the idea that this would be a lump of money that children would get when they reached the age of 18, um, have been abolished. Um, fees are increasing, but they're to be repaid dependent on incomes later on, and there will be uh, a national scholarship um, program which will... Um, uh, which will help um, children coming from families with low incomes um, and indeed universities that choose to charge more than £6,000 um, have to convince the government that they're taking uh, measures to improve access including additional scholarships for, for young people. Um, <clears throat> we looked at in a number of different ways uh, the ways in which the economic position of young people outside education had deteriorated and pointed to the dangers, um, well known, I think, of the scarring effects of early unemployment. And here, I think, it's very hard to see any good news at all. We know that youth unemployment continues to rise. There are increasing numbers of young people who are not in education, employment, or training. Um, the, what was once the Future Jobs Fund has been abolished. Um, and we don't yet know what the impact will be of the new kind of employment programs um, once they're contracted out. And I think it's worth noting that uh, where, where, while a lot of discussion has been around um, higher education and the changes in financing, further education has not been um, insulated 
um, from the cuts. Um, we also looked at the way in which within the labour market, once people reach it, reach it, there are systematic differences between the kind of groups we were asked to look at, looking in particular by gender and ethnicity, that don't relate to um, people's qualification and occupation, and the way in which transitions from education to the labour market don't seem to make the best use of people's talents. Um, I may have missed something, but I, I couldn't quite identify anything that really um, helped in, in terms of this, um, of this challenge. Um, and I do have to say that given the, one of the things that was identified um, as a social barrier to entry into the professions, at least, by the Milburn report um, two years ago, and, and Alan Milburn is still doing work for the new government, um, that unpaid internships um, as a way of entry and getting experience um, were unhelpful in terms of um, wide social access into higher professions uh, and reading of auctions um, where people can actually buy unpaid internships um, in return to, for donations to political parties um, really seems to be um, completely out of the line with anybody's definition of equality of opportunity. Um, we also looked um, in particular at um, uh, the most disadvantaged groups within the labour market, um, the Bangladeshi and Pakistani populations, and there's a, a cross-cut there with, um, if you look at things by religious affiliation with, with uh, the, the Muslim population of Britain in terms of strong disadvantage in employment and pay. Um, and we also looked at the way in which um, the income of, of women uh, does not progress in the labour market um, after, the age of, of 30, uh, after the age of 30 in the way that it does of men, um, although this is something that's changing over time, and pointed to low pay for part-time work as being a key factor in that. Um, the coalition agreement says that the government will promote equal pay and take a range of measures to end discrimination in the workplace, um, and I, maybe somebody can... Um, let me know what those, those have been. I mean, I'm not saying they're not there, but I haven't, they didn't come to mind um, as I was writing this. Um, we pointed from the data we looked at to the way in which the national minimum wage had clearly had a powerful effect in cutting off what would otherwise be the bottom of the labour market um, and pointed to its power. Now, um, there was indeed in the election campaign quite a lot of discussion by members of, the, of, of all parties of the importance of the living wage. Um, I believe Boris Johnson is implementing the living wage um, within the London government. Um, and the Low Pay Commission um, uh, continues its work and um, we will um, presumably see its recommendation and the government's reaction to that at some point. Um, we pointed within gender inequality to the way in which the idea of career progression, that you, your, as your experience grows and you, um, you become older, your pay rises until a moment when you drop off the cliff um, into retirement, um, uh, is not something that characterizes um, men or women um, with low levels of qualifications. Um, and it only um, characterizes women with high levels of qualification working in the public sector. Um, so most women uh, do not benefit from career progression in the way that it's sometimes assumed that people do, um, and that pointed to um, the importance of policies around parental leave, flexible employment, and childcare. And now, in fact, we've seen um, some reductions in um, support for childcare and tax credits, um, the rules affecting childcare tax credits. Um, but then earlier this week, uh, or end of last week, um, you will have seen um, that there has been um, a new voluntary code 
um, for increasing representation of women, I think, towards 25% in the boardrooms of the FTSE, um, FTSE 100 or FTSE 250. Um, other than that, I, I wasn't sure what I could see. Um, we also pointed to the position of disabled people and the way it had been deteriorating in the labour market and um, the, um, the, the way in which um, those um, disabilities but also ill health um, led on through to um, not just a lower uh, standard of living in retirement but actually a much shorter retirement. And this is something that a report which came out after ours, the Marmot Review of Health and Equality in England, focused on very directly, and I don't think that there's been um, a response to Sir Michael Marmot's recommendations um, that would take forward the kind of things he was talking about. Again, the coalition agreement does talk about how that the government will investigate ways of improving access to preventive health care in disadvantaged areas. But again, I don't think we've seen the results of that yet. And of course, there is a very controversial set of reforms to incapacity benefit going through, started in many ways by under the last government, um, but you'll have seen the controversy just within the last week about the way in which some of the tests being used um, um, are having effects. Um, we also pointed, um, in personal interest, having, having been involved with um, the Pensions Commission under the last government, um, we uh, pointed to the way in which those Traje widening trajectories through working life were associated with huge differences in the resources available to different kinds of people as they entered retirement. So just one um, example of that, um, the median wealth, including private pension rights, the median wealth of professional workers, um, including houses, um, savings, pensions and everything, um, if, if people are aged between um, um, 55 and 64, is 900,000 pounds. That of people who spent their career in manual jobs is 150,000 pounds. And indeed, a tenth, uh, for a tenth of manual workers, um, their, their wealth um, at that point is less than 8,000 um, pounds. That being the resources people have available to go through them into retirement. Um, now, part of the point of the pension reforms um, that were introduced by the Pensions Acts of 2007-2008 was to try and um, uh, help um, some of those um, inequalities in, in old age. And indeed, one of the first things that the new government did was to announce that rather than waiting until April 2011, the basic pension would now be linked to um, earnings or indeed to prices or a minimum of 2.5% um, increase each year, and that will start in April um, in two months' time rather than in a year's time. It has to be said that given that earnings are below 2.5%, it doesn't actually make any difference, but at least the principle has been established. Um, alongside that, the move to CPI indexation um, of other elements of pensions will um, obviously affect people who's, who, um, who are affected by that, and that include both people with private pensions but also elements of the state pension system um, as well. Um, the new low-cost, um, open-to-all um, National Employment Savings Trust um, will be going, uh, will, will be, um, is, is being um, introduced. That was uncertain at one stage, and that will open up low-cost retirement savings um, for a large group of um, lower-paid workers um, and people uh, near, near average earnings um, who um, haven't got access to it at the moment. Um, 
default retirement ages where people can be told you've reached 65 and therefore um, you have to retire um, are being abolished um, this October. I think, again, as people know, um, the, however, the state pension age um, is going to be um, accelerated and there's a particular group of women um, of pretty well my age um, who are most affected by that. Some of you may be in the audience um, and may have views on this. Um, but on the other hand, um, a whole series, and in, in contrast to quite a lot of the policies towards the working age population, um, things like winter fuel payments, free TV licenses, bus passes, and so on have been protected. So um, some of the, the mechanisms that protect people from um, some of that transmission uh, into um, retirement have been, have been preserved. Um, we looked at, um, and some of the starkest differences we showed in our report, are differences between um, uh, different kinds of neighbourhood. Um, we suggested that what had been the neighbourhood renewal agenda of the previous government itself needed renewal. Um, I don't think we quite had in mind that that would involve abolition of things like the Working Neighbourhoods Fund, um, or that as funds for local authorities were reduced, it would be a pretty straightforward, straight line in terms of the percentage cut um, going along upwards with the level of deprivation of the local authorities. Um, at the same time, there have been very large cuts to the budget for new social housing. But um, the, um, the government is committed to the establishment of a new network of community organisers um, and indeed announced, um, I think, last week um, that the contract has just been let for the training of these community organisers as part of the big society agenda. Um, and meanwhile, um, I think we, we have yet to see, and it will be in, very interesting to watch, what the effect of the localisation agenda, the devolution of decision-making below local authority level is on different kinds of neighbourhood. Uh, let me move on quickly. Um, we argued that um, we needed to be more successful in supporting social tenants, both towards and then into work, and in terms of asset building, given the kind of figures um, I just gave, um, a tenth of social tenants um, aged 55 to 64 have total wealth of all kinds, including their personal possessions and furniture of less than £3,000 um, to face retirement. Um, now, uh, on the work side of that, um, higher rents, uh, which will now happen for, for new social tenants, um, will worsen the poverty trap, um, making the gain from work rather smaller, going the other direction from some of the government's other reforms. Um, and the idea that people should get shorter-term tenancies on the philosophy that once people's circumstances have improved, they can then move on from social housing, um, may set up precisely the wrong incentives in terms of um, sending the message that get a job, lose your home. Um, which would seem to me to be rather unhelpful from a personal point of view. And then, as I said before, one of the, the mechanisms that was supporting everybody in terms of asset building, the child trust funds, have been abolished. Um, we also pointed to the way in which the data show actually rather little difference between um, the different nations of the UK and suggested that that threw down a challenge to the devolved nations that have um, really rather strong commitments to social justice in their uh, as it were, they wouldn't be constitutions, but in their um, core, in their core documents. So we've we've seen some differences in the way in which the different governments are um, uh, implementing the cuts. Um, but what we ended with was a view that actually, in the short term, 
Um, it's going to be how the public finances are rebalanced that will be the most important inf immediate influence on economic inequalities and ask the obvious question as to whether the costs of recovery um, will be borne by those who gained least before the crisis or by those who are in the strongest position to do so. Um, and just as one illustration of this, this is the analysis that the Institute for Fiscal Studies produced just after the spending review. Um, and uh, they put together um, three different um, sources of um, changes in where the deficit reduction is coming from and what that implies in terms of losses for, for different groups. And I've cunningly color-coded these um, so that the, the ones in red there were the ones that were announced by the previous government back in the, uh, the budget um, uh, a year ago. Um, the ones in yellow I've, I suppose, attributed to uh, one side of the coalition uh, and the ones in blue to another side of the coalition. Um, and you'll see from that that in cash terms, um, people with the highest incomes, particularly as a result of the, the tax changes that were announced last March, um, will indeed be, be losing the most um, in absolute amounts. But the IFS analysis of what that means in terms of what percentage of their income they lose um, looks rather different. And indeed, um, in terms of it's inevitable when public services are being withdrawn, um, that will bear hardest on um, as a share of income of those at the bottom. Um, but you will see that the, um, the top tenth um, do lose a larger percentage of, of their income than others, and I'll leave you to judge whether um, that, um, that um, meets the criterion we've set before as to um, who is bearing the burden of the adjustment. Um, so in the end, um, we reached our conclusion, which I think is in contrast to um, the starting quotation from the Deputy Prime Minister, um, which is that we didn't see how one can dissociate um, the current pattern of um, differences in resources between people um, and what then happens in the next generation and across the life cycle and argued that, we, that our findings showed the way in which economic, and economic advantage and disadvantage reinforce themselves across the life cycle and on to the next generation and therefore argued that although a fundamental aim of many political perspectives is to try and achieve equality of opportunity, and that remains true of the current government, doing so is very hard when there are such wide differences in the resources which people and individuals have and their families have to help them develop their talents and fulfil their potentials. On the other hand, as you will have seen, this focus here has been rather narrowly on um, economic inequalities. Um, and we started our report in our introduction by arguing that our focus on economic inequalities is in some ways a very narrow one. And they're not necessarily the most important aspects of either people's lives, their well-being, or their happiness. And that's what um, Polly is now going to talk about. So thank you, John, and um, thanks everybody for coming along tonight. Um, as Stephen has said in his introduction, I'm going to be talking about something called the Equality Measurement Framework, which is a new framework for evaluating multidimensional inequality and deprivation in England, Scotland, and Wales. 
The development of the framework has been financed and commissioned by the Equality and Human Rights Commission and the Government Equalities Office and the Scottish and Welsh Governments have been partners in the project at various points. Cases taken forward the work, but there's also been some other research teams that have been involved in the work stream, and notably um, a team from Lancaster University led by Sylvia Wolby and an Oxford research team. I'm going to try and do three things very briefly in this presentation this evening. Firstly, to give some theory and context to the framework. Secondly, to describe the framework itself and to canter through some of our key findings. And then finally, to finish up with some recommendations that we think can be drawn from our work stream for a consultation that's being undertaken at the moment by the Office of National Statistics on how to go about measuring national well-being and whether or not happiness should be the focus of that particular exercise. So the theory and context... The academic background to the equality measurement framework is theoretical roots in SEN's capability approach. So capabilities, as many people um, will be familiar, is what SEN describes as the central and valuable, valuable things in life that people can actually do and be. So things like being healthy, being able to live a long life free from premature mortality, living without fear of personal violence. And Sen has proposed the concept of capability both as the focus of a theory of justice and a good life, but also as a very practical information space for undertaking a whole range of interpersonal comparisons in evaluative exercises across welfare, economics and the social sciences. A focus on capabilities contrasts with other informational focuses, so specifically income and wealth because it's multidimensional, so going beyond economic outcomes, as John was saying, and, and bringing in other domains. With resources, because the capability approach is viewing as accounting for underlying differences in needs and situations, such as the additional needs associated with, with disability, there's also an important contrast that comes out this evening with approaches in welfare economics that emphasise utility, happiness and well-being because the capability approach insists on objective as well as subjective evaluation of the position of individuals and groups. And the capability approach has found very simple operationalisation in the Human Development Index that's been developed by the UNDP over the years. There's also now a much broader literature on multidimensional inequality and deprivation analysis that builds on SEND's work but tries to extend the techniques that are available in the income-focused context to the multidimensional context and um, Tony Atkinson has written an important article in that area and also some others. People might also be aware of the Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and Social Progress or the Stiglitz-SEN Commission that's recently uh, reported and has recommended a shift in the focus of measurement from focusing economic production to a focus on well-being and quality of life. And it set out some recommendations about how we should go about measuring well-being. And first of all, it thought that well-being should be conceived of multidimensionally. So it set out a minimum number of dimensions that it thought needed to be looked at in an exercise of that type. So not only material living standards, but also looking at health, education, personal activities, so work and care, and political voice and governance. It also recommended that assessing well-being and a quality of life requires a plurality of indicators, 
So the finding was that composite indicators and indexes can be useful, but the comprehensive well-being analysis will require a different approach and a plurality of indicators. It emphasized the importance of subjective of, and objective measures, so objective measures also being important. So going beyond people's self-reports and perceptions to measure what SEN calls their functionings and their capabilities. Finally, that inequality should be evaluated between socioeconomic groups, so for example by gender, but also with attention to new inequalities such as those associated with immigration. And then following on from that, but also in response to some coalition priorities, the ONS launched its national consultation on well-being in November, and it has attempted to initiate a national conversation about the measurement of well-being, and anyone that follows the BBC will know that um, they have indeed um, had a lot of press coverage on whether the focus of that exercise should be happiness, and I'll return to that question after saying something about the EMF. So the EMF, or the Equality Measurement Framework, is our attempt to operationalise the capability approach for England, Scotland and Wales. It has four core building blocks. So firstly, a focus on capabilities. Secondly, it has a capability list. So this is a wider range of dimensions than the Stiglitz-Sen Commission recommended. It, it covers ten domains, so life, physical security, legal security, health, education and learning, standard of living, productive and valued activities, participation and some others. That was um, derived from a deliberative research process, this list of 10 domains. So we talked to the general public and to individuals and groups at risk of discrimination and disadvantage about what the key freedoms and opportunities they regarded as being critical for living in Britain today. And this was the capability list that was synthesized through that process. We've also argued that to operationalise the capability approach, you need to monitor three aspects of the position of individuals and groups. So not only their functionings, what they're actually doing and being, but also their treatment and their autonomy. So for example, in the health domain, whether they're healthy or not, but also how they're treated, whether they're discriminated against, whether they're treated with dignity and respect, and whether they have choice and control in relation to medical treatment, issues of consent, and so forth. And then finally, at the bottom, the um, yellow box gives the final building block, which is a set of disaggregation char characteristics, which builds on the characteristics set out in equality law, so gender, ethnicity, disability, age, religion, and belief, sexual orientation, and so forth. Also, um, social class, and just a mention at the bottom of non the non-private household population and vulnerable groups, who we think need to be covered in a national well-being monitoring exercise. So if you bring all of this together, you get what we call our conceptual frame or conceptual grid. It's something like a 3D matrix. It's all about monitoring people's outcomes across 10 domains. And we're doing that using a capability list, which you can see is reflected in the columns in terms of three aspects of the position of individuals and groups. That's the rows and a series of disaggregation characteristics. And that's the tiers. And we're doing this using an indicator set so we have a dashboard of five indicators for each domain. So, for example, the life domain gets five indicators, and we've got ten domains. That's a total of 50 indicators as a whole, and it draws on a wide range of social survey and administrative sources. We put a lot of effort into the legitimacy and transparency of the indicator set itself, so that was achieved through a specialist consultation process, and we have an initial evidence base that... Um, was put forward in our research report in 2009. 
So, as an example, the capability to live a full life, avoiding premature mortality, is our first domain capability for life. It has an indicator dashboard covering life expectancy, infant mortality, homicide, accidental death, and deaths within public and private institutions. So we have an evidence base which tries to identify where the key inequalities are in the distribution of premature mortality between key socioeconomic groups, and also with that fifth indicator is sensitive to the position of the non-private household population. So just to run very quickly through some of our key findings, this is indicator one for life, which is life expectancy, and the chart shows by social class. So you can see from the graph, the top line at the, um, at the, the thick blue line at the top gives the line for the higher managerial and professional occupational group. And although expectancy of life has been increasing for all social groups over this period, which is nine, the 1980s to 2006, the, the line for the higher managerial and professional group is higher than for other occupational groups with routine or manual workers on the bottom line, so the thin blue line at the bottom. So for the higher managerial group, life expectancy rose to 8.4 years, whereas for the routine group, only to 74.6. And that gap, the difference between the highest and the lowest, has in fact increased during the period from 4.9 years to 5.8 years, most of the growth has been concentrated, in fact, in the second group, which is the brown one. So, for example, um, social workers um, and teachers and less um, growth in the semi-routine and routine groups. So, um, for example, bus drivers and cleaners. And this um, strong social gradient is also reflected in our next indicator, which is infant mortality. And there's a generally good picture for infant mortality. It's, it's also been improving. So it was 12 per 1,000 live births in 1980. And by 2009, it had the lowest recorded rate for England and Wales of 4.4. Um, the social gradient is still pronounced, so higher for those um, whose parents are in um, professional groups than for those in lower social classes, but also data linkages over the last um, few years have also provided a picture by um, country of birth and ethnicity, and we find that for new immigrant groups um, coming from East Africa and the Caribbean and Pakistan, uh, our, um, the infant mortality rate is, 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 low, is, is worse, and that's also reflected in this chart, which is infant deaths per thousand life births by ethnic group um, for babies born in 2005. And you can see that the rates for Pakistani babies and Caribbean babies at 9.6 and 9.8 are almost double that for the white British group at 4.5. This indicator is our indicator of homicide. And the chart gives offences that are recorded as homicide in terms of rates per million by age and sex of victims. And you can see that most of, for most groups, um, they're clustered in that mass of lines at the bottom. The all group, you can just see um, 13 at the bit beginning of this chart and 11 at the end. So the beginning of the period we're looking at here, 1999-2000, an overall rate of 13, and by the end, an overall rate of 11. That's not bad internationally, 56 um, per million 
in the US and um, a bit above 8.8 per million um, in Germany. We know that the risk rates for men, for younger men and middle-aged men are higher and the purple and the blue line gives those rates. So the purple line, so that's for males aged 16 to 29, starts off at 32 and ends at 26 per million. For, um, by ethnic group, um, we know that um, black victims are more likely to, disproportionately are more likely to be um, killed um, using sharp stabbing instruments um, or by shooting and that they're geographically concentrated in London and the Met and the West Midlands. But I think for us the really striking thing about this graph was the under one rate. So if you look at the two green lines coming across here, that is the um, homicide rate for under ones for males and females. And you can see this increased rate to 56 per million for, um, for males at the beginning of the period, um, coming down to 31, and for females, 43 to 35. So a, really a, a much increased um, risk for the under one group, which this might be something well known to criminologists, but it wasn't well known to us, and we found it really quite an um, insightful um, statistic. And this pattern of risks for under ones is also reflected in the next indicator, which is accidental deaths, um, and it's, it's on the chart by age and social class. So the, it, this is again rates per million um, for England and Wales, and it's for the years 2001 to 3. And the eight different age groups for children up to 15 are coming across this axis. And within each age group, there's a breakdown by occupational group of the parents. And there's, there's a social gradient for all of the age groups here, but the social gradient is particularly pronounced for the under one group. And you can see that the difference there for children whose parents are uh, allocated to the routine and the non-occupied groups, that's a rate of 226 and 217, compared down at the beginning of the zero to one um, cluster, um, rates of 13 and 7 for higher managerial and large employer or higher managerial occupational groups. So really quite staggering differences. The, the rates of um, higher managerial to routine is something like 17 or 18. So before I give the last indicator for the life domain, I just wanted to say something about some of the indicators in our other domains. So this is um, physical security domain, personal violence. And this um, table gives variations in experiences of personal violence um, drawn from the British Crime Survey. It's an approach that controls for um, other factors and gives you the likelihood that any one particular population subgroup um, it was a um, victim of personal violence over the last 12 months. And the, the key information um, to take away from this table is the likelihood of being a victim of violence right up at the top there um, comes down with age. So it's, it's called an odds ratio and it um, decreases with age and the stars show that the difference is statistically significant. So for the older age groups, 25 to 44, um, going up to 65 to 74, those odds ratios are saying that there's less of a risk of personal violence or a likelihood of personal violence than for the 16 to 24 age group. 
also less likelihood for females, but what is interesting about this table is the rate for people with a long-standing limiting illness or disability here compared to those with no long-standing limiting illness or disability. Now, when you don't control for age, um, this statistic um, doesn't come out, but we were having a lot of feedback from um, our stakeholders and the participants in the consultation about increased um, risk for people with disabilities of personal violence. And that increased odds ratio, um, this one here, um, shows that actually once you have controlled for the age profile of the disabled population, there, there is in fact an increased likelihood of violence by disability. And that story for disability also carries over to sexual violence and domestic violence. So this is again data that um, is drawn from the British Crime Survey. And we can see that the odds ratio for disabled people compared to non-disabled people, again, is increased and it's significant. So in both cases, the odds ratios are increasing by a factor of two for the disabled population. Another particular feature of this set of numbers is the gender inequality picture. So up here you can see the rate for males compared to the rate for females and the odds of, uh, for females of sexual violence increases by a factor of nine and the odds for domestic violence increases by a factor of almost two. So when we looked at the overall violence figures, increased risks for females didn't come out of that data, but when you drill into specific categories for violence, you can see that the gender inequality picture comes out. This indicator is from our health domain, and it's a treatment indicator. And I said at the beginning we're trying to get not only indicators of people's functionings, but also the way they've been treated. So not only what their outcomes and attainments are, but how the process works and how they're treated during that process. And the hospital um, inpatient survey provides a particularly rich source for doing that because it asks about all sorts of um, aspects of people's treatment during hospital stays. This table gives information on those who say that they were not always treated with dignity and respect during their hospital stay, and also those who say they weren't given sufficient help that they needed to eat during their hospital stay. Now, we included the information on the first um, of those, dignity and respect, because our stakeholders thought that this was a good way of drawing out um, and providing a quantitative backing for some of the qualitative evidence on very poor treatment of older people in hospitals. And they thought that asking dignity and respect, um, it, it probably it, older people might not say we're being discriminated against, but they might say we're not being treated with dignity and respect. In fact, you can see that's not the picture coming from this data. So the odds ratios for older groups are going down. So in fact, the likelihood of saying you're not treated with dignity and respect goes down with age. It's, it's increased, um, increased likelihood if you're female and also if you um, have a long-standing limiting illness or disability. And at the bottom there, we have um, the odds ratios for people who are over 81 with a long-standing limiting illness or disability compared to younger disabled groups. And that odds ratio is, is increased, but it's not significant. So we can't say there's um, worse treatment from that first column of older people. So this, this didn't, wasn't a picture that backed up what our stakeholders were saying, 
But it's interesting that if you ask a slightly more objective question, um, one that maybe is more in line with an objective indicator approach than a subjective well-being approach. So did you get enough help that you needed um, from staff to eat your meals while you were in hospital? Then this, this figure here um, for the over-81s who are disabled compared to the younger disabled groups does become positive and significant, so increased um, odds ratios and significant in a statistical sense. So this is our last indicator for the um, life domain, and it's the one that we said would pick up on the non-private household population. This indicator is under development, and we think we need more data in this area. But the ONS has just published this series, which is death through dehydration, um, where dehydration is the underlying cause of death, so not just mentioned on a death certificate, but death through dehydration being the primary cause of death, by place of death. So it reports separately for care home context and hospital context. And the background to this is um, there's been more monitoring of deaths um, within the health sector and the um, mid-staffs inquiry by the Care Quality Commission was precipitated by data on excess deaths in hospitals and Dr Foster has been producing new evidence on excess deaths in hospitals this year. This was particularly appealing to us because it allows us to pick up on care homes. And what we find is that, um, these are, these are um, rates per million, by the way, what we find is that over the period from 2001 to 2009, um, both in the care home context and the hospital context, there's been an increase in um, this, this type of death, and um, that's significant in a um, statistical sense, albeit um, low numbers. So I said I'd finish up with a brief discussion of what we think are the implications of our work stream for the ONS National Wellbeing Consultation. So uh, perhaps not surprisingly after those figures, um, ONS has asked should the focus of a national wellbeing ex measurement exercise be happiness, and we think that's not the correct focus. We think capabilities are a better focus and that happiness and subjective well-being indicators are relevant to an overall portfolio for looking at well-being, but provide an incomplete or an inadequate metric of well-being. We think that the ONS has put out the question, what matters most in people's lives? Our capability list, we think, with its ten domains is relevant for that question. ONS has asked, should well-being indicators be used for monitoring public services, we think it should, they should be, but only if they're broadly conceived. And for example, the idea in the Policing Green paper in 2008 that there would just be the use of an overall confidence indicator wouldn't be appropriate. We think the violence rates um, and other aspects of legal security need to come in to that kind of monitoring as well. ONS has asked which kind of measure would provide a the best national picture of well-being. They give various options, economic measures, sing a single measure of overall life satisfaction or happiness, a small selection of indicators, a large selection of indicators, or a single index. We think a single index can have a role as a communications tool, but the kind of plurality of indicators envisaged by the Stiglitz-Sen Commission is very important, and we think that our dashboard approach is useful. They've asked what should be included in a new subjective well-being module, and we think that our um, 
indicators of discrimination and dignity and respect are important contenders since they're, they're important for subjective well-being. And we are concerned that some of those indicators have just been lost because of the um, ending of the citizenship survey. So we would hope that some of those might find a new place in the new um, module that's being um, developed. And finally, we'd emphasize the importance of systematic disaggregation and coverage of the non-private household population and vulnerable groups for well-being analysis. That's the kind of analysis that can bring out equality and human rights concerns and the kind of divisions that we've been discussing tonight. Thank you. Good evening. I, I've enjoyed these presentations very much, and I'm in agreement with much of what's being said. So I'm not going to launch into a blistering critique of them. Uh, in fact, reflecting before on the title of this session and on the fact it's devoted to the work of the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion, I decided to devote my five minutes to poverty and social exclusion and their relationship with employment. Now, social exclusion is obviously the most extreme form of uh, division where a significant number of people are not able to participate fully in our society. And while that participation has many dimensions, and that's one of the themes of both of the talks, one important dimension is clearly work. And work is important both in its own right as a, allowing people to participate and as a means of fighting poverty. Now, I'd like to begin just with a, a, a positive observation, since quite a lot of what we've heard has been somewhat depressing and negative. Uh, but I think one observation I'd like to make at the start is that the issues that we're talking about, and particularly ones I want to focus on of poverty and social exclusion, are now firmly on the political agenda. I want to remember that in 1983, the Prime Minister stated in the House of Commons that there is no definition of the poverty line and there never has been under any government. Now, Mr Cameron could not say that today. Uh, not only did the Labour government, under both Mrs. Mrs Blair and Brown, adopt a high-profile objective of reducing child poverty, but the coalition government has taken over that objective. And if that appears to disagree with the quotation from Nick Clegg, I refer him to section 14 of the coalition agreement, which makes that quite clear. And also, as, a, as I suppose he is the, the pro-European part of this duet, uh, he should also, I think, realise or recognise that one of the things this government did very soon after taking office was to agree, as part of the European Union, to the Europe 2020 agenda, which for the first time included a target for the reduction of poverty and social exclusion, and with a key headline objective of reducing by 20 million the number of people at risk of poverty or social exclusion. The European Union is not just a customs union and a common currency. So that is the background. And there is, in that sense, a political willingness. But 
how are we going to achieve a reduction? How is Britain going to contribute its part of the 20 million reduction? And the standard response, and if you read the reports already being made by the Social Protection Commission of the European Union, is that this government and most governments say that the answer is employment. Not the only answer, but the particular major element in their programme is to do it through work. It's both a form of inclusion in itself and it is a means of taking people out of poverty. But what I want to do while welcoming clearly emphasis on employment and more, even more on reducing unemployment, I want to raise two concerns about this. Employment may be a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition for people to escape poverty. That's my first concern. And the second one is, I think we need to examine more carefully the reasons why people are excluded from employment. So, first of all, the view that employment will not necessarily be sufficient. And in a sense, we've already learnt this from the previous agenda of the European Union, the, the Lisbon Agenda. In 2000, heads of government agreed that they wished to raise employment and to reduce social exclusion. And they didn't succeed in raising employment. The employment rate has risen, particularly amongst older workers, but in general for the population, employment's gone up on average, in fact in most countries of the European Union, quite significantly. Not quite as much as they hoped, but certainly, for example, in terms of narrowing the gap with the United States, Europe has now much a higher level of em employment. But the poverty rate, in terms of financial poverty, and I'm talking now more about John Hill's part of the story than Polly's part of the story, but the financial poverty rate remained virtually unchanged during this period. And what's more, perhaps more worrying, is that those countries that managed to increase their employment did not show significant reductions in poverty. And the most notable example is Germany, where the employment rate rose quite markedly in the latter part of the last decade. But poverty, in fact, rose. The reason was that many of the new jobs that were created, you've probably heard about one and two euro jobs in Germany, many of the jobs were low paid and the poverty rate rose rather than fell. So it's not any jobs that are needed, but jobs that pay sufficient to raise people and their families above the poverty line. And creating such good jobs is much harder. And that brings me to my second concern, the reasons why people are excluded from employment. And here, it seems to me, policy over quite a long time has been focused far too much on one side of the labour market. And this is just as true of the coalition proposals for welfare reform. Incidentally, it's interesting that they use the word welfare uh, rather than the more friendly-sounding social security or social protection. And welfare sounds more like soup kitchens and less like the RNLI or something that's there to help you, as it were. But the emphasis, it seems to me, is wrong because it's purely on the choices by workers. And we've heard quite a lot in recent weeks about lifestyle choices, about the emphasis on what individuals can do as workers, 
rather than on, for example, the risks that they face, and rather than on the act actions of the employer side of the labour market. Now, this is where I want to make a point about social exclusion, which is that it's different from poverty, not only in being multidimensioned, and that's come out clearly from the presentations, but also in having a dimension of agency. To exclude is a verb. There are people doing, acting to do that. And the people who fail to get a job feel excluded and perhaps fairly or unfairly feel that the person doing, the people doing the exclusion are those on the other side of the labour market. They're the employers. Conversely, looked at positively, employers may feel it's their responsibility to provide employment. And there was a good example, I thought, this morning, for those of you who heard the Today programme, uh, Alison Wolfe was talking about the importance of apprenticeships and pointed out there are certain sectors of the economy, some parts of the building industry, and she mentioned particularly hairdressing, where there is a social norm encouraging employers to take on apprentices. And such social pressure means I think it's more likely that employers will take a long-term view. And certainly in some work we did many years ago on the intergenerational linkages about which John talked, one of the things that we found in that work was that doing an apprenticeship, almost regardless of what field you did it in, was actually a very positive indicator for people's future careers in employment. They may do something quite different, but the apprenticeship was a crucial thing to it. So it seems to me that we need to focus more on the reasons why jobs are not being created and to encourage a positive climate for employment to make it the case that employers feel under some social pressure to create jobs. Otherwise, we're going to face the risk of a jobless economic recovery. In the meantime, I think we should give serious consideration to the bold proposals of one US president. Which one? Not Barack Obama, not uh, FDR, but President Bill Mitchell. Remember Bill Mitchell? No, he wasn't the real president. Uh, he was a fiction. Uh, but in the film Dave, uh, <laughs> If you've ever seen the film, he proposed at the end of his career as stand-in president a national employment guarantee. The federal government should be responsible for guaranteeing as, as an employer of last resort. And it seems to me if we're going to be serious about making employment available to all, then we must have a plan B. And my plan B is a guaranteed employment by the government. Now, you may think that's a wacky idea, that that belongs in Hollywood, and that this guy hasn't heard of the nat national debt. Well, I won't go into the national debt, since the chairman will rule me out of order. But uh, it does seem to me it's perhaps a wacky idea, but I think it's a bold idea, and the LSE is meant to be a place where we discuss such things. Thank you.
Well, although um, Tony has sort of redeemed the evening slightly, um, this hasn't exactly been a barrel of laughs so far, has it? Um, I mean, Polly started off with talking about the domain of capabilities called life and then proceeded to speak for 15 minutes about death. Um, and John is always so excellent at being clear in both his books and the sorts of presentations you heard today about how um, awfully unequal we are and how um, so many people still suffer from forms of exclusion of one kind or another, um, that it's difficult to um, feel cheerful. And this is it's particularly depressing, I think, because in a sense there is evidence that British society has had quite a long aspiration to be um, a more equal society in which people enjoy good relations between groups, people's individual rights and so on are respected. And I suppose in, in a sense this is borne out particularly in some changes in attitudes but also in the development of our legislation and um, policies. And to some extent, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, I suppose, is the latest sort of institutional manifestation of that aspiration. But the problem, or one of the problems, that the Commission felt was pretty acute at the beginning of its existence three years ago was, although it's fairly easy to have the general aspiration to make a variety of statements of the type John opened his presentation with by Nick Clegg, that it's difficult to make progress unless you develop some consensus and some focus on really what is it we want to see equality in because nobody really believes in the literal sense of a society in which everybody's lives are equal. So what is it important to get equality in and for whom is it um, important? And in a sense... I think we saw one of our most important tasks in our first three years of existence to try and develop what would inevitably be an imperfect consensus about some of the things that it was most important to concentrate on if one was going to be serious about making further progress and having fewer of those depressing statistics that were in most of the opening presentations uh, a few years into the future. Um, and the development of the equality measurement framework that, policy, uh, that Polly described was our initial attempt to begin to operationalise these general concepts of equality um, in a way that would begin to allow some of that understanding of where the key issues really lie and where the focus needs to be for making further um, progress. And I think from the outset we took on board particularly a point that John made that whilst equal opportunities is extremely important and one would not want to um, diminish the importance of ending overt discrimination and making sure that people have those opportunities that there is something about the inequality of resources that people start out with or that their families start out with that is important to tackle as well as the issue of opportunity. So on that basis we supported and developed the work that Polly described on the equality measurement framework and 
I think that what I would like to do is to just comment briefly on some of the particular strengths I think that that has for two things. One is the um, debate about what we should be considering when we think about uh, the measurement of welfare, uh, sorry, the measurement of well-being, the measurement of happiness, quality of life, etc. And um, secondly, the uh, implications in the current uh, policy environment. So, so what are some of the um, strengths of this approach? Well, I think that the first, um, which is important, is that it does attempt to define the answer to the question of whom should we be most concerned about. It takes as its starting points groups that are defined statutorily, and it also includes within that not only those that are defined statutorily in equality legislation, but also the concept of vulnerable groups um, as defined in human rights um, type theory. And I think that's important because to some extent that, for better or worse, represents a sort of the democratic processes view of where we've got to in terms of groups that, um, in legislative terms, we feel require some um, consideration. Secondly, um, it is really important that it distinguishes between the issue of outcomes, processes, um, and autonomy. It's really important to consider all three of these for the reasons that Polly um, briefly outli outlined. Um, you can have um, equality of outcomes, so you could have the same employment rates between people, but if it's taken one person 20 job interviews to get employed on average and another type of person only two job interviews on average to get employed, there is an issue and a problem of the processes in terms of discrimination and so on, so one needs to look at that too. And I'm going to return in a minute more specifically to talk about autonomy because I think it is particularly important and it's a sort of an underdeveloped area that we consider equality in autonomy, equality in your ability to make choices as much as we consider um, equality in outcomes and processes which are more traditional. The third aspect of this approach which I think is very helpful is that it's multidimensional. It covers um, all the main areas um, of people's lives in the sense of um, uh, the norm, the, both the material areas of income and um, employment and so on, but also the so-called sort of softer areas like being able to express your identity um, and uh, so on. It's, um, it's very important that this framework con contains indicators that are both about minimum standards and about equality in terms of people's position in an overall distribution such as um, wages. So there are indicators which are about minimum standard like um, reaching a threshold of 60% of median uh, income. And this is important I think because when people think about equality there's the, the revolving door problem that actually in a sense there's always going to be somebody who's potentially less um, 
less well off than somebody else. If you improve one group, then you make somebody else um, less well off in terms of the overall distribution. But I think what this um, approach is doing is suggesting that there are some areas where it is right that we should have, if you like, absolute equality. We should be striving for a position where nobody uh, in any group has a high chance of being below one of these thresholds. And then there are other areas where what we're really interested in is ensuring that for the groups that we've um, described on the basis of their personal characteristics that need protecting, that whilst we might argue about what the overall distribution of something might be, so there isn't a consensus about what the overall distribution of income in the country should be, we as an institution are not trying to make um, definitive statements on that, but what we are saying is, is that if you have data that shows that people with particular personal characteristics have a higher probability of being on one part of the distribution than other groups, then you want to try and break that link. So the fact that this framework includes both of those types of measures is extremely important, and any measure of um, welfare and well-being needs to consider both. Um, but perhaps underlying all this, the um, greatest strength of this approach is, if you like, its legitimacy, which policy Polly touched on. The choice of this range of indicators, the areas of life it covers, the fact that it thinks about uh, overall distribution and uh, minimum standards, it thinks about the capacities or the capabilities that people need to thrive in life, is built on a solid academic foundation, which Polly went through and I won't um, repeat. Um, but it also relates to the long history and development of human rights perspectives. And it is also based, and Polly perhaps didn't do herself enough justice on this, it's also based on extensive deliberative consultation um, with the public, with equality groups, and with experts of one kind or another. And as this seminar series is called LSE Works, I must give a plug for the team here. They are one of the most tenacious in terms of that deliberative consultation going back repeatedly to experts to get the ultimately right answer to quite technical questions um, and the resulting set of spotlight indicators, the dashboard that was referred to is a good starting point for the time being. It may not be perfect for sort of time immemorial and it will need reviewing but it is very well founded and as I say I don't think Polly really emphasised this enough in terms of having an enormous input of deliberative consultation and expert um, input. Um, and that gives us confidence to say um, this framework should be used by other people in two ways. Um, one is that in, its conceptual, in the conceptual framework, it effectively gives a checklist of 50 indicators that people really ought to look at. There is now a public sector duty on public authorities to... to show and to demonstrate that they are taking due regard of um, equality. And this is a quite a useful checklist that, that public institutions should look at to demonstrate that they are at least giving consideration to the areas which are um, particularly important. And then, of course, the second use of it is um, that it allows us, because we have also... Well, more accurately, the LSE team who developed it for us, 
has linked it to actual statistical measures so we can begin to quantify or get decent estimates around some of these indicators and begin to highlight those areas where there appear to be particular problems for particular groups. And I think that's the final sort of strength of the approach that I would like to commend, which is the distinction made between indicators and measures. So on the one hand, you have indicators which are defined as a result of this deliberate consultation as the things which it is important for people to um, have in order to thrive in society. Um, we are not over um, influenced in the selection of those indicators by what measures happen to exist at the moment. But then we have tried to define practical measures which get as close as possible to each of those indicators. And we would expect those measures to be improved and to be developed and to be reconsidered over time as the data landscape changes, which I'll, I'll come to. Um, but, um, it, but in an attempt to get as close to those indicators as possible, and those indicators can stay reasonably stable for a period of time because they are based um, on that solid, um, solid foundation. Um, I think, however, that having sort of stressed some of the, the strengths and, and the use of this, there are a couple of things to say in terms of the challenges in terms of developing this work further. Uh, I want to emphasize two areas. Um, one is that um, I think we do need to give a greater focus and attention to developing the autonomy indicators further, which I mentioned earlier. Um, I think that um, this is partly to add to the understanding we have of how one should interpret subjective um, process and subjective perceptions. Um, because uh, the autonomy indicators have within them um, a, a sense of trying to understand um, how people's own internal expectations differ in terms of what choices they see available to themselves. And unless one begins to understand that more fully, it's actually very difficult, I think, to interpret uh, the subjective um, indicators which are within the framework or which may form part of the ONS's new bank of indicators on um, welfare. Um, secondly, um, I think it's um, really important um, to develop an understanding of equality of um, choice because um, most people in society actually um, aren't, uh, aren't uniformly happy. Happiness and well-being um, well varies from time to time and from situation to situation. Most of us actually have a sort of a trade-off approach to life or a credit and debit approach to life. We do some things that may, might make us unhappy, like working in an unpleasant occupation in order to be happier because of the living standard we can enjoy outside work as a very simplistic example. So we need to be concerned not only with the equality of well-being or the equality of happiness or the equality of outcome, but we need to be concerned with the equality that people have in the choices they're able to make in terms of those um, trade-offs. Um, I'm going to um, 
I'm going to wind up though with a couple of just a couple of very quick comments on the application of some of this in current policy environment. Um, very briefly, there are a number of pressures uh, which suggest that we need to get more of this type of data and we need to get better at collecting it and interpreting it and understanding it. So most obvious point in a time of um, economic um, constraint, public spending cuts, etc., we need to be very forensic about the way in which we allocate resources. Targeting becomes extremely um, important. And we need to apply the sort of data which is in this framework to the sort of cost-benefit and public interest considerations that go on when people are making those sorts of choices under very constrained conditions. Um, secondly, um, there is the localization, accountability, and transparency agendas of the current um, coalition. And there's a sort of an idea that somehow service providers are going to provide information on the outcomes for different groups of people um, as the basis on which um, people are going to hold them to account for what they're doing, as opposed to a reliance on meeting centrally um, imposed targets or um, centrally imposed requirements. So this new basis of accountability requires that we collect and understand more um, of this data at an institutional level as well as at a societal level. And thirdly, um, there is this acceptance, which I won't, won't dwell on again, about the fact that we need to measure wider aspects of quality um, of life. All of this suggests that we need to be better at collecting the sort of data which would support um, an understanding of the indicators in the equality measurement framework. But the most obvious challenge is that um, we are currently undergoing reviews of data, and policy men Polly mentioned this briefly, which suggests that quite a lot of the sort of data which is currently used as measures in the equality measurement framework are about to disappear. So whilst on the one hand we have the pressure to improve our understandings and increase the amount of data, we're in a situation where much of it is um, disappearing. And there's a big challenge, I think, which is how do we institutionally, um, collectively, organise ourselves so that the minimum of that data disappears? And that's not just the big survey data. Um, and I'll end by saying, when we tried to use the Equality Measurement Framework operationally, we produced the first of our three yearly reports to Parliament um, on the state of equality in Britain. Um, after you finish the 400 pages of the NEP report, you can turn to the 800 pages of the triennial um, review, which sets out in great detail for 40 or 50 indicators the sorts of findings that Polly was discussing. Um, but uh, we had to rely for that. Probably over 50% of the content is based on small-scale studies and qualitative work to support the absence of quantitative work. And under the current economic conditions and the current developments of statistics, not only are some of our statist major statistical sources in danger of disappearing, but also it's not clear where the funding for repeating those small-scale studies and those other pieces of work which are necessary to building up a picture of... Um, equality across that range of items in the um, equality measurement framework is going to come from. And I hope very much that the debates going on now around what we need to capture in order to understand well-being 
are going to um, lead to some practical changes in some of the current plans which will allow some of that data to be retained and will ensure that some of the funding continues for the sorts of studies that are necessary to supplement it. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. We have, we have time for about five minutes to, of questions, so while you're readjusting yourselves and the panel is coming up, perhaps you can think of some questions. Is there... We have microphones. So there's, there's one over there. Second green person. And third man next to him. Thank you. Yes, please. Hi, um, it's Kate Bell. Um, a very quick comment, which is that the idea of an employment guarantee isn't that radical. That's what the Future Jobs Fund was for young people, which, as John mentioned, has just been abolished. Too far. And the question was um, about the connection between the two parts of the presentation. And I wondered how far the three aspects that um, Polly talked about of um, functionings, treatment and autonomy tracked onto the economic indicators, if there were differences between how far people's economic status predicted their status across those three dimensions of well-being. Thanks. I'd like to collect a few questions and then we'll read the answers. Sorry, the second was... Yes, sir. Um, for Dr. Vizard, um, what shall I say? Uh, you had Bangladesh's down 4.2 and Paki, uh, Paki, uh, Pakistanis at 9.6. Can't read my writing here. Um, why the difference? Uh, they're both on the Indian subcontinent. Thank you. A question specifically for, for John Hills. Um, to what extent did your remit cover? Um, intergenerational transfers because it seems to me that I think you quoted a statistic saying that um, on death the median um, uh, assets of people living in not in non-private housing was £3,000 I suspect if you were to look at private housing, it would be something in the order of £300,000. There is a massive uh, uh, issue there regarding equality of opportunity for, as it were, the next generation. Thank you. Please. I was curious... has a great responsibility with regard to equality of opportunity and ambition and pressure for education. And the result that was missing, any government can do a certain amount, but I think particularly with children, it starts at home. And parenting these days seems to be very different from my day. Take one more question and then we'll... No? Panellists. There were some questions directed generally at John and Polly, and then maybe the others can chime in if they will. Um, yes, there are a couple, I think, that are specifically for, for Polly. Um, quickly on the, on the intergenerational transfers issue, um, I'm very pleased to say that there's a piece of work going on within CASE at the moment, um, supported by the Nuffield Foundation, um, where we're looking at 
um, things that are associated with the distribution of wealth. I didn't say anything very much about wealth today. Um, and part of that is work that my colleague Eleni Karagnaki has been doing, looking at intergenerational transfers and the way in which they relate to people's uh, the, the inheritances relate to people's wealth. So I'm afraid I'm going to kind of just say, please watch this space, and I hope um, that later in the year we'll have some kind of event on that. But just to clarify uh, the figures I gave about the £3,000, that wasn't um, quite at the point of death. That was um, for the poorest tenth, the least wealthy tenth of social tenants aged between 55 and 64. Um, I mean, going on to one of the links between... Um, the kind of economic factors that I was talking about and the kind of some of the indicators Polly was talking about, I think the most shocking statistic in our whole report um, was the reporting work by um, the um, English Longitudinal Survey of Ageing team on the differences in mortality rate of the over 50s as a whole, depending on their wealth level. Polly showed some of the numbers that are related to social class, but actually um, wealth level is a better predictor of mortality rates. Um, the mortality rates for over 50s um, are four times as high for women from the lowest fifth of wealth as for women um, with the highest fifth of wealth, and I think that's um, a, a, an extremely um, shocking example of the link between the economic um, and the others. Um, and the, the final point um, on, on parenting, I mean, of course, I, I agree. Um, parenting um, style and, and so on is very important. We quote in our report work from um, the Institute of Education, looking at the Millennium Cohort Study, um, showing the, different, the, the way in which differences in what teachers um, judge as being readiness for school are strongly related to income levels. I mean, very strongly related to income levels, even when you control for other things, but they're very strongly related to mother's education. I think that's a, um, a source of hope, given what's happened to uh, women's um, educational achievement in the last few years. Um, but it's also positively related to things like whether children are being read to at the age of three regularly and so on. There are things that people do that make a difference. And there are many um, examples of that in, in Frank Field's report that came out just before Christmas. The regret I would have about the conclusion that Frank Field uh, reached was that he poses, in some cases, these things as being alternatives, that either you concentrate on things like parenting or the early years, or you concentrate on the resources of poor families. It seems to me, from the evidence I've seen, that both of those matter, and they play into one another. Um, yeah, the question on um, Bangladeshi and Pakistani um, infant mortality rates, so why the difference? And there, there is, a, I mean, I think that's a very good question and that there is some concern about that statistic and why it's lower for the Bangladeshi group, um, particularly when um, some of the explanations um, around um, congenital deformity and some um, practices that um, might be associated with the Pakistani group um, might also be associated with Bangladeshi group, I, I believe that Bangladeshi rate is based on quite small numbers. It's one year, it's a data, data linkage project, so perhaps around 30. And I think there's a concern that um, we need to pull more, more years to be absolutely sure that there would be a difference between those two groups. And I think the ONS itself is, is looking into exactly why that difference has come about. So yes, it, it, it is a strange finding um, that there would be that difference, I agree. David, Tony, would you care to make any comments? Just to make one point, which 
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank you very much for coming to this uh, seminar on the LSE Works Series, and thank our speakers and commentators once again for giving up their time to come and talk to us. Thank you.